Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Isaiah chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the worship guide that you received when you arrived or find it in an app on your phone or your device. However, you want to get there. Just get there. Isaiah 5. We're continuing a series in the book of Isaiah. And I trust that God will minister to us this morning by His Word in His power. As Rick just prayed, our hope in the Word of God, our hope rests in the Word of God. It does not rest in any man or in any words that I would have to say, but only in the revealed Word of God, communicated by the preacher, faithfully applied by the Holy Spirit to our hearts. Let me pray one more time and ask the Lord's hand on that. God, give mercy, give blessing, give anointing to the preaching of your word. For your word shows us yourself and draws us to Christ. And it's in him we pray. Amen. On the evening of April 14th, 1912, as it glided across the frigid waters of the North Atlantic, the RMS Titanic, a supposedly unsinkable ship, struck an iceberg and sadly sank. The official count is that 1,504 people lost their lives and are buried in that watery grave of the North Atlantic. Sadly, since that tragic night, Reports have come out, and it's been largely proven that this was a disaster that could have been averted. It's a disaster that could have been avoided. You see, there were a number of ways in which the crew dropped the ball in executing their most, their most prudent task, the most important task, and that was keeping people safe. One such way that, it was, that they dropped the ball was that there were numerous other ships in that region of the North Atlantic that night, and numerous warnings were bouncing from ship to ship, warning one another of icebergs that were large and that were numerous throughout the area. Well, for some reason, whether it be dismissiveness on the part of the crew or just communication snafus on those who were receiving word from other ships, those warnings were not listened to. And I could give you other examples, right? Sadly, there are instances that we could all call to mind of times when people heard warnings and they did nothing about it, and great peril came about. One that comes to mind for me personally was Hurricane Katrina. Back in 2005, end of August 2005, ravaged New Orleans. What happened is the storm hit and it overpowered. The the rains came so fast, the waters rose so quick The levees that flowed throughout the city of New Orleans, which rested under sea level, the levees in their weakened state could not hold. Flooding penetrated throughout the city, costing 1,800, I think, 33 lives. What you may not be aware of is that the Times-Picayune, New Orleans' largest newspaper, just three years earlier had run a large series uh, 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 examining the inefficiencies and the weaknesses of the levy system in New Orleans, and it warned that the city leaders were, quote, tempting fate if they did not address the weaknesses of the New Orleans levy system. Sadly, 
1,833 people died in New Orleans of the flooding. Another example, just 10 years ago, this coming Thursday, you remember the earthquake and tsunami that hit Japan and the uh, Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant that melted down and all the disaster that came about as a result of that. After, after that event occurred and as time started to wear on, nu- uh, nuclear experts in Japan started bringing it light to the fact that the company that ran the power plant and the government regulators that were supposed to oversee it, they had all ne- neglected and ignored the warnings that this could be bad if disaster struck, the power plant was not prepared. But we aren't the kind of people that would dismiss such dire warnings, are we? None of us would do that. Or would we? Well, in Isaiah 5, we're going to be served by God's Word in seeing a warning for ourselves. Isaiah 5 shows us a warning of the fact that we must be careful not to assume that a good spiritual start, even indicating the blessing of God upon us, will keep us from spiritual disaster and ruin in the long run. Let me repeat that. A good spiritual start that seems to indicate God's blessing and His hand upon us does not guarantee that we will not end up in spiritual ruin and destruction. So let us hear the warnings of Isaiah chapter 5. We're going to hear this in first a parable in a poem, and then warnings of wrath. And then as we wrap that up, we'll ask the question, where do we turn? A parable in a poem, warnings in wrath, and then the question of where do we turn? First, the poem that we see is in Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7, and it's given in the form of a parable. Now, you might be familiar, a parable, they're very common in Jesus' day, right, in his teaching. He would teach oftentimes in the form of parables, and what what a parable would do is that the teacher would, would tell a story and would use that to illustrate a greater principle to his audience. And then oftentimes at the very end, he would turn it around and, and, and nail the audience with the fact that the parable was intended for them and it was describing them. So follow along as I read from Isaiah 5, and I'm going to guide us through it, verses 1 through 7, and you'll see this parable in the midst of a poem. It reads, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Pause here. Isaiah is writing, and he's, he's writing, recounting, or, or singing a song that God would be singing for a vineyard that he has planted. God is the beloved. God is the one who has established this vineyard. And now, we need to be careful in thinking about what a vineyard would be or how it would be pictured by the audience of Isaiah's day. A vineyard is not the little small garden that you might have in your backyard. Vineyards are vast. They're, 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 they're wide in their expanse. They're, they're, they're broad in their scope. And not only that, but you read the language here. Uh, this, this one who planted it, God, he's the one that dug it. He's the one that cleared it of stones. Uh, uh, it, Israel in Isaiah's day was, was full of these big stones. Imagine, you know, some of the stones around our neck of the woods. 
and trying to do any kind of big, big uh, uh, landscaping work or, or, or anything like that, you're going to have to deal with some massive stones and get rid of them. And so he's saying, the beloved had the vineyard. He, he put it on a fertile hill. He cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He even built a watchtower in the midst of it. He was going to live amidst the vineyard. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded only wild grapes. Now, I, I'm not an expert in vineyards or grape harvesting or planting or anything, but apparently, if, if, if you plant a vineyard, grapes aren't the kind of thing that you plant in May and they come out, they, they harvest in September. They actually take years and years and years, I think sometimes two, three, four, five years for them to reach their harvest. And so, this one who planted the vineyard yield, uh, wanted grapes to come about, but years later when they finally came to fruition, it was wild grapes. So now God says in verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So now God enters the picture and he's speaking. He's asking Jerusalem, Judah, what else could I do for my vineyard? And he's saying to them, as he asked them, um, uh, he, he says it was supposed to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. That, that, that imagery of wild grapes is actually uh, an imagery of like, like, like bad fruit. Of, of even, the word actually even denotes like stinky grapes. They were rotten. They were stinky. They served no good purpose. Being around them, the smell of them actually just sh- served to show you how terrible they were in their rot. So he asked Jerusalem and Judah, what should I do? And they're hearing and they're acknowledging, yeah, you've done everything you can do, God, for your vineyard. And God says in verse 5, now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. So he's saying, I'm going to destroy my vineyard. I'm going to remove it. I'm going to eradicate it. It is not serving the purpose for which I have created it. And the parable here is that the people of Jerusalem and Judah would be hearing this and would be thinking to themselves, you are right. This vineyard needs to be wiped out. For it is a vineyard that is bearing no good fruit and it's only bearing wild grapes. But now listen to God as he brings the parable home. Verse 7, he tells the people of Judah, who have been hearing this and who have been undoubtedly agreeing with him in their hearts and their minds as they've been silently nodding their heads in approval as Isaiah told the parable, all of a sudden they stop nodding in approval as he says in verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God says to him, you are the vineyard. You, O Israel, O Jerusalem, O Judah, you who I planted in choice ground, you who I nourished and who I have loved and whom I have protected and I have preserved and I have shown all of my goodness to, you are the ones bearing wild grapes. And now he promises, as the wild grapes that he's seen, he thought they would bear justice, but they bear bloodshed. 
as he wanted them to produce righteousness, behold, what has come is an outcry. And now he says to them, I'm going to remove you. And now as you listen to this, as you consider this parable that our God has given to his people, and as we hear, as we listen in on this warning, then the question that you might have come to your mind is, okay, Stephen, another passage about judgment? We've seen this a lot in Isaiah chapter 1 through 5 up to this point. Well, what we see in Isaiah 1 through 5 is that uh, uh, Isaiah chapters 1 through 5 serve as a, as, a, as a spiritual prologue explaining the state of the people of Judah and Jerusalem and explaining, in, in essence, God's relationship with them and where their hearts really were in their disobedience to him. So that's why you kind of enter into the story in 1 through 5. And then in chapter 6, then you will, if you want to go ahead and read ahead in uh, this week to come, you'll see, we'll actually meet Isaiah himself. And you'll meet God who's sitting in his very throne room. And so Isaiah 1 through 5 stands as this prologue, warning of judgment. And so you might be, you might be tempted to say, okay, I, I can't do any more judgment, Stephen. I'm going I'm to tune out on this one. But I would encourage you, do not do that. Here's the reason. The parable is given for people like you and I. The parable is given for those of us who might roll our eyes at hearing another warning. Isaiah is grabbing us by the shoulders and saying, you must hear this. And we, by God's divine mercy, receiving God's word this morning, though we are not Jerusalem and Judah, we must hear these warnings lest we be the vineyard that is removed. Now on the other side of the coin... You might not be rolling your eyes saying, oh man, more judgment. You might be saying, oh, well, Stephen, is, is the Bible saying, are you saying that God is saying, are you saying that Isaiah is saying that somebody can receive new life, uh, new birth by the divine hand of God working his grace upon them, and in our instance, like somebody who believes in Jesus Christ and repents of their sins and trusts in him for new life, are you saying that that can happen and then they lose it? That doesn't seem to be in accord with what the Bible shows or what we believe about the gospel. Well, no, what I'm showing you and what Isaiah is going to be showing us, Isaiah is going to be showing us that where oftentimes people seem to begin well, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, we see example after example of people who veer off the path in the marathon of the life of obedience to God. That, that, that appearance of a good start was nothing but a mirage. And they have veered into disobedience and proven that they did not really know and serve God. They were not truly planted in the vineyard. They were wild grapes. So that is the parable in a poem. Now let's move on and see the warnings of wrath. As we read verses 8 through 30, I'm not going to read it all at once. We're going to kind of journey our way through it. We are going to see six what are called woes. A woe is not a word we really use in our day and age. It is a prophetic, like, like prophecy, a prophetic warning to the audience that is hearing this word from God, a warning of judgment that is going to come upon them for their rebellion and for their sin against God. So that is what a woe is. It, it, it is a word spoken by God, a prophetic warning, lest they... Or that, that judgment be coming upon them for their sin. So look at the first one. The first woe 
in verses 8 through 10. It, it is a woe against their greed. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but one ephah. So that is the warning or the woe against their greed. They're going to be building houses, they're going to be accumulating land, but it will not come to fruition as they planned. But let's go on and let's see the next woe. Woe against their self-indulgence in verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. So we've seen these first two woes, and now we see coming after this, God's response to these first two woes. But his response, his first response is actually going to be against the self-indulgence, and then it's going to be against the greed. So it's like greed, self-indulgence, and now God's response against the self-indulgence, and then his response against the greed. So see verse 13. In light of their self-indulgence, in light of their feasts, in light of their endless drinking, and them not regarding the deeds of the Lord, verse 13 then says, therefore my people go into exile. For lack of knowledge, their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Do you see how verse 13 contrasts with verses 11 and 12? Look at that. In verse uh, 11, they run after strong drink. In verse 13, their multitude is parched with thirst. In verse 12, they have uh, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts. In verse 13, their honored men go hungry. See, what Isaiah, the warning sign that Isaiah is holding up for us here is that whether it's through alcohol and strong drink, whether it's through bountiful feasts, whatever it may be, Isaiah warns us against anything which would dull our spiritual senses. Consider this. Do you find God or the things of God to be boring? Do you find other enjoyments in this life that attract the affection of your heart? And church is kind of like a spiritual check-in. Church is the toll booth that you pass through each week, and then you go back and live the life you truly want to live the rest of the week. And I don't mean necessarily like, like you, go, you, go, you go live in a blanket rank debauchery. It's just a dulled senses to God. They don't have knowledge of Him. They don't regard the deeds of the Lord. They're kind of out of sight, out of mind. How easily do we dull ourselves? How easily do I dull myself with watching sports all the time. Not that sports are bad, but maybe 10 hours straight of sports, not the best management of time. How easily do we dull ourselves with binge-watching Netflix while our Bibles collect dust? How easily do we work to perfect a craft or continually have that home improvement project that we're working on while our actions reveal in the rest of our day-by-day that we find God to be boring? Brothers and sisters, like those who are enjoying a rousing good time on the Titanic, enjoying the restaurants, enjoying the ballrooms, unaware the ship is just seconds from an iceberg. Those who dull their spiritual senses with a boredom with God. Isaiah says to us, we're playing a dangerous game and we must hear the warning. 
lest we run off the path. If you're young, I encourage you, every voice in your life that you will hear is a voice of live for the day, a voice, a voice even in your own mind of feeling your, your, invincible, your, your invincibility. Well, something I dealt with high school, college, even beyond college, just, just unaware of my own mortality. My friend, may I urge you to ponder eternity. Ponder the deep things of God. Take your deep questions before God and open up the treasure chest of His Word and find the riches of knowing Christ and the abundance of insight and goodness in knowing ourselves through His Word. Now, look at this warning against greed. Remember verse 8, those who join house to house, those who join field to field. What is Isaiah saying here? They, what does it mean here? Well, in Judah, around 740 to 700 B.C., there were some who were in the business of, of real estate speculation. What they were doing is they were buying up homes and they were buying up lands, building compounds in hopes of cashing in. But in verses 9 and 10, the, the, Lord, uh, the Lord promised to frustrate such greed. They invested so richly in their homes only to find that the market crashed before the land could be enjoyed. Look at verse 9. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. And then verse 14. Read on. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. So verse 14, you read it and you're like, Sheol? What is that? Well, Sheol was, in our, in our Bibles, it, it seems to be a poetic name for the, the ground that we go back into when we die. And so it kind of reminds us of death that will come for all of us, but it also has a, has a tinge or a sense of promise of, 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 of a place that particularly the wicked go. And so God is saying as the wicked in their greed build their homes as they accumulate their land, Sheol will ultimately swallow them up. Now, I want to stop right here because it's, as, as we're seeing these woes and as we're encountering this judgment, in many ways you might be thinking that this seems out of step with our understanding or our approach to God in this day and age. What about the God of love? What about the God who, 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 who's here to make me feel good. And I don't mean that necessarily badly, but the God, the God who, who speaks to, to my, my deepest needs, my deepest desires in my heart, my deepest, deepest uh, uh, weaknesses, my deepest infirmities, all of these things. Why is this God of judgment? He seems to be playing into all the stereotypes that I would have of the Christian God or the God of the Old Testament. Maybe that's the case you've been in. Well, I encourage you, Isaiah is the place to come with those questions. Because here's what Isaiah does. Isaiah takes our questions and our, and our strange response to the judgment of God, and Isaiah forces us to reevaluate how we understand God from our perception. Here's what I mean. Isaiah holds before us a God who is vast in his judgment upon sin of his people. And Isaiah says to us, would you have it another way? If you think that God's judgment upon sin is not appropriate, how would you have it? See, what we see here in Isaiah 5 is that the things that God is judging are the same things that we would want God to judge. A place that is rampant in greed where it is ultimately leading to corruption, 
a people that we're going to see as we work our way through chapter 5 where, where justice is small on the scale and a, a big picture might means right. The poor are being trampled over. The, 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 the weak are having lives ripped out from under them. And what Isaiah shows us is Isaiah is saying to us that the God who stands before us in judgment, he's actually not different than the cries of our heart today. We all see and we diagnose problems that we, we, we understand about the world around us. We see it in our political opponents or our political adversaries. We see it in those who, who, who perhaps have a different understanding or a different worldview than we do. But what Isaiah shows us is the disconnect in how we diagnose problems in the world with how God diagnoses problems in the world. What Isaiah shows us is that we diagnose problems in the world by looking at everyone outside of us and saying, if only those people will get their act together, then this world will be a better place. I am speaking a word of judgment to them. But God shows us that the judgment is upon us. God doesn't say, look at everyone around you and look at all the problems they have and speak judgment to them as you are the authority over them. God says, I'm going to hold you accountable. And that's true justice. That's a true way of understanding the world. And way, ultimately, you know, the most simplistic point, how to make the world a better place, is not to diagnose all the problems with everyone around me, but to diagnose the problems with me. And so Isaiah gives us a picture of God's justice that perhaps might be bitter to our mouths, but that's only because it's convicting and bitter to our hearts, because we don't want the judgment or the justice of God to come upon us because we know what it'll find. In fact, if you read this, as we have problems with God's justice, look at Look at why God speaks this justice in verse 14. So as Sheol has enlarged its mouth, has enlarged its appetite, opened its mouth beyond measure, the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down. Her revelers and he who exults in her. And then verse 15, man is humbled and each one is brought low. And the eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. The problem with these real estate practices in Judah was that lands were being bought up and the poor citizens of, Ju- of Judah were being driven out of their homes. So what Isaiah in one sense here is starting to force us to do as we consider greed is he's forcing us to start to understand or start to wrestle with how we understand wealth. God does not condemn wealth in his word. But throughout the Bible, he does tie wealth to a responsibility to justice and to righteousness. And we see this in verses 14 to 17. The Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. The holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. And the way in which he executes that is these these homes that are being built, these lands that are being accumulated, they will be wiped out. And then verse 17, the, the lambs shall graze as in their pasture, and nomads will eat among the ruins of the rich. Frankly, I don't even know how to parse out all of this today. Here's what I mean. You talk about justice, you talk about righteousness, you talk about wealth, you talk about greed. Consider how we steward the wealth that has been entrusted to us. Do we do business with companies that treat their lowest laborers unjustly? Do we buy products that are made with forced, even slave labor? I'll be honest, I bet I am wearing 
multiple articles of clothing today that were made by people making unbelievably poor wages. And I recognize that this is complicated discussion, different costs of living in different places around the world, supply chains are confusing and convoluted. How are we supposed to know the answers to some of these questions? I'm ultimately saying I don't know, but what I am saying is that God's Word calls all of us to have an understanding that how we steward our wealth speaks to how we understand justice and righteousness in the world and how we understand those who are less fortunate than us. The danger with greed, as it's born out of wealth, as it's born out of accumulating wealth, is that it so easily takes over our hearts. It so easily takes over our hearts. Imagine you invite an old friend from college to come spend the weekend with you. You've been looking forward to their visit for a number of weeks, even months now, and you have plans on you're going to you're going to uh, go walk on the beach. You're going to eat out at, at wonderful tasting restaurants. You're going to catch up and reminisce. And you're going to do all these things over the course of this long weekend together. You're just really looking forward to welcoming this friend into your home. But then they show up and they're not quite the friend you remember them being. They show up and they eat all the food out of the refrigerator. They leave the refrigerator door open. They run the TV late at night, early in the morning, the volume's too loud, they're turning the thermostat up way too high, turning it down way too low, and you kind of get to the end of the weekend, and you're, it's one of those where you're ready for them to go. It's kind of how we can be with wealth and then greed. We welcome it into our home, but then we realize that it's starting to turn the thermostat, and it's starting to cause a lot of disruption, and it's actually starting to influence our attitude and our perspective. It's doing more work in our hearts in our homes than we first realized or invited. So the third woe that God speaks against the people of Judah, the third warning that we must hear, there was greed, there was self-indulgence, and then there's spiritual cynicism. Verse 18 and 19, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Look at this imagery in verses 18 and 19. Look at that closely. He's given the picture of like, like imagine a a, a large animal tied to a cart that is pulling, right? They, They draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. They draw sin as with cart ropes. They're enslaved to this, this beast that, or, or this burden that they are hauling. But then they turn and look at the Lord and say, all right, do your thing. Be quick. Speed it up. I want to see what you have to offer. Look at that spiritual cynicism. How often do we tell God, okay, God, show me what you've got. I don't have, all, I don't have a lot of time. It's time for you to work in this situation if you truly are who you say you are. I've got a busy day ahead. Do your thing, God. How often do we try to make God play something like American Idol where we are Simon Cowell and, and we give God two or three minutes to give us his best pitch for why we should trust him or why we, why we should be obedient to him or why we should follow his word in regards to a specific situation we're facing and God better make a good pitch. Time is of the essence. Maybe you have a friend who wants to read the Bible with you or started to invite you to a growth group and you begrudgingly agreed to go to the growth group but in your mind you're thinking, okay, God, you better make this good. Time is precious. I'll stick with it for a couple of weeks, and if it works out, great. If not, I'm, I'm out. Or maybe you're trying out church for a season. 
pandemic is a good time to check in spiritually and, 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 and just kind of recalibrate your soul. But as restrictions start to lift, as the weather starts to warm up, you say, all right, God, give me a reason to hang on. Isaiah says, you're enslaved to this burden of sin that you're carrying and in your spiritual pride, you're telling God that he has to perform for you. Fourth woe is a woe of moral relativism or denial of truth. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. One of the alarming ways that we invite God's judgment is by by denying God's truth and just blurring reality. Of all people, Christians must be people of truth, whether it is convenient or not for us. A true understanding of the world and of ourselves and of our God is necessary if we are going to worship God in spirit and in truth. The people of Isaiah's Isaiah's day were intellectually rich, but spiritually poor. They, They considered themselves ability, they considered themselves capable of holding court on the greatest discussions of their contemporary day. The only problem is that these greatest discussions revealed their own sin. They had abandoned truth for the sake of relevance. Isaiah's fifth woe is a woe against the arrogance of the people of Jerusalem and Judah. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And if I can be honest, this is one I've been reflecting over for a month or two, not even knowing that this was coming. I knew this principle was in the Bible. I didn't know it was in coming Isaiah 5. I'm alarmed as I consider the last couple months, as I consider the ways in which I've just felt in various circumstances, various conversations that my voice needed to be heard. Whether it was a conversation with a friend or a roundtable discussion with other pastors or discussing the ever-positive topic of politics with family or friends or social media, I, I, I had a point that it could, needed to be made, a correction that needed to be offered. And in one sense, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Stephen, your voice does not always need to be heard. How often do we take that posture in of ourselves? We're wise in our own eyes. We're shrewd in our own sight. May we all take the warning that position can betray us. Just because you might be high on the organizational hierarchy at work, it only means that the fall caused by your arrogance will only be that much greater. How often can age betray us? Maybe you've seen many things over many decades and you feel that many others must hear your opinion because of this. Education can betray you. The Lord has graciously shown me many times where I have spoken too quickly and only proven myself foolish and felt like, oh, my two, my two master's degrees that I have ought to mean something. Well, all they mean is that I'm foolish when I don't listen, when I consider myself arrogantly superior to others. This is not a point of pride. It is a point of foolishness. And you know the church is a great place to combat such a mindset. We have the opportunity and the responsibility to hold one one another accountable. We have the opportunity and the responsibility to tell each other when we're wrong. We have the opportunity and responsibility to admonish one another when needed. And may I share that this is a precious gift from God when brothers and sisters lovingly, gently correct and challenge one another. It's a precious gift from God that keeps our feet on the ground, which is absolutely critical if our hearts are going to fly higher in holiness. So, dear Christian, when a brother or sister in our church family pokes or prods at some arrogance or pride that they see in your life, 
joyfully thank them for exposing this blind spot. When you're bothered by a brother's or sister's actions or attitude, when you're the one that wants to go poke or prod, before going to them, ask God for the mercy to reveal to you where you might be blind. And then approach your brother or sister with the gentleness of one who is holding a gentle little baby bird in your hand, and you don't want to crush them, but you want to nurture them, as opposed to going to one with uh, not holding a bird in your hand, but having clenched fists and saying, it's time for them to feel my wrath. The fifth woe is a woe against the arrogance of the people of God, and the sixth and final woe is a woe against their corruption. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty of a bribe and de- deprive the innocent of his right. In many ways, this echoes the previous condemnations against the people of Judah. Just consider the very end of the parable in verse 7. What was it? God looked for justice, but he found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but he found outcry. And here he looks for those who are right and just, but they acquit the guilty for a bribe and they deprive the innocent of their rights. One thing that another pastor pointed out to me this week as I prepared is that this serves a great warning to us. Because the people of Jerusalem and Judah actually mistook the judgment of God upon them for blessing. Think about it. What do you consider to be evidence that you are blessed by God? The people of Jerusalem and Judah were prosperous. They were enjoying the pleasures of life. They were wise in their own thinking. They were culturally relevant in their engagement with others. And therefore, they felt they were enjoying the blessings of God upon them. But God in Isaiah 5 tells them no. He tells them that they are not prosperous, but they are greedy. They are hedonistic, they are arrogant, they are immoral, and because of this, they are fools upon whom the judgment of God will soon come. And if we will not hear this warning, we will live in arrogance like the crew of the Titanic. We will live in inattention like those who oversaw the levees in New Orleans, or we will live in dismissal of warnings like the owners and regulators of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in Japan. And we are inviting the spiritual judgment of God upon us that is no less severe than what we have read and are still to see. Look at verse 24. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the Holy One of Israel. Basically, they're going to be wiped out. And listen to this. At the end of verse 24, uh, well, we'll come back to that in a second, but I want you to remember something back in verse 12. Remember verse 12, it said, they have the lyre, they have the heart, the tambourine, the flute, the wine at their feast. But then at the end of verse 12, it says, it said, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord, or they do not seek the work of his hands. But then verse 24 ends, they've rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They've despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Do you see how their, their spiritual pride is revealed and their rejection of God's word? And they're not regarding the things of God. At the very end of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, we hear this from a high and exalted God in all of his glory. He says, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The warning sign of these woes, perhaps the greatest warning for us all, is a warning to not discount or dismiss or ignore God's word. Isaiah reveals to us that we will either tremble under the word of God as it rules over us, or we will experience the terror of the wrath of God as it washes over us. Unless we ignore this warning, hear the specifics of how the sweep of God's wrath against Judah will be delivered. Follow along in verses 25 through the end of the chapter. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. 
He stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked. He brought an earthquake upon them. Their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. But as if an earthquake is not enough, continue on. Read of the invasion of a powerful, superior, swift, and mighty army in verses 26 and following. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loosed, not a sandal strap broken. This is a superior and mighty army. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows are bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by its clouds. Where do we turn as Isaiah 5 concludes? Where do you turn if you feel the weight of the warning of these woes? If you feel this parable in a poem was speaking to you? Well, brother or sister, these six woes, they must be examined, but they may also be our servants. They may be our servants waving bright flares, warning of danger if we will only heed the warning, telling us of the path of destruction. But I want us to see, when we consider where to turn, consider the question of God in verse 4 when he's describing his vineyard. Where he said, verse 4, what more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? Well, in the redeeming mercy of God, there was one more thing that was to be accomplished. Consider the words of Jesus that might be familiar to you, but perhaps after examining Isaiah 5, will take on a new familiarity for you. Consider these words of Jesus in John 15, verses 1 and 2 and 5. When Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So brothers and sisters, as we walk through the vineyard, burned out, destroyed, wrecked in God's wrath, consider the wild grapes. If the destroyed wreckage of the vineyard forces you to want to turn your head away, understand that the more we survey the vineyard of Judah, the more we examine ourselves, the more beautiful the cross of Christ will be when we stumble upon it. As we walk through the clearing of the vineyard and part the way, and then we see the cross standing there beautifully for us to behold, beckoning us to cling closely to it and never to leave its shadow. So the question is, do you abide in Christ? Do you trust in His perfect atonement for the sins that the woes of the prophet have spoken against your heart? Do you abide in Christ? Do you live in the shadow of the cross, constantly reminded of the high cost of sin and the one who bore it? Do you abide in Christ? Do you cling closely to His Word? For apart from Him, you can do nothing. Do you abide in Christ? Never believe that God's good work for you is found in the success of your life. But his work for you is in the good sanctifying of your soul as he shaves off the greed, the arrogance, the cynicism towards him, the self-indulgence, the corruption, the denial of truth. And he replaces these with a heart that finds supreme value in Christ, with a heart that finds 
true joy in the things of Christ, with a heart that finds total humbling under the rule of Christ, with a heart that finds total submission to the word of Christ, with a heart that finds absolute truth is grounded in Christ, and a heart that finds Christ is not to be tested, but he is to be trusted. He tells us, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That we profess, having gotten off to a good start spiritually, none of us has the luxury of ignoring the warning signs that might reveal a tragic spiritual destiny awaiting us. We must abide in Christ. Will we hear these warnings and cling closely to Christ in whom we live and in whom we thrive? Let's pray. Lord, would you help us, your people, to abide in Christ, to hear these warnings and forsake them, to hear warnings against our pride or warnings against our dismissiveness of your word, and to cling closely to Christ and know that it is in him that we live. Lord, help us to abide in Christ and help us to hear the warnings of Isaiah 5 and help us to trust in your goodness, in warning us of this judgment, and in your grace, in Christ receiving the judgment in our place, in his cross, if only we will abide in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.